Hello, Islamic Connection listeners. It's Katya. In this episode, I catch up with recent dual degree Crease and LBJ Global Policy Studies graduate Lucia Winkler. Today's episode centers on Lucia's research and her recently completed master's report about the Chechen children of Dolvi, or Black Widows. This episode contains discussions of sexual assault and suicide, so listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Cool. Then we're going to go ahead and get started. All right, Lucio, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk about the report you wrote. It's called Chechen Chorne Vdove, The Most Lethal Human Black Widows. I'm going to quote you here, but in, in the report, you say that your objective is to, you seek to understand what causes and motivations are possibly behind the Black Widow movement in the Northern Caucasus. And your anchoring question is, what is it about Chechnya and Chechen women in particular that set them apart from other women terrorists and specifically Islamic terrorists? So before we jump into this really intriguing question and how you went about answering it or attempting to answer it, I first wanted to ask you, how did you even come to this particular topic? Uh, women terrorists in a, in a place like Chechnya is, you know, that wouldn't be my first kind of like idea for writing a, a report. So what was the path that led you to this, this particular topic? That's a really good question. And that's a completely understandable question, given that, like you said, when you think of terrorism, you don't normally think of women terrorists and you don't normally think of Chechnya as a region where this occurs. But actually, in order to answer your question, we kind of have to time travel back a little bit. So when I was a senior at Texas A&M, I was taking a course called Geography of Terrorism. And so as part of that course, obviously, you look at terrorism in different regions of the world. And one of the regions was Chechnya. Um, within sort of the European scope of things. And I had to write a term paper for that course. And I knew I wanted to write about something related to Russia, but I didn't know how I was going to write about something related to Russia for terrorism, because a lot of the other topics we were talking about had to do with the Middle East. So then my mom suggested, oh, there's this big, well, at the time, there was this huge terrorist attack called the Dubrovka Moscow Theater hostage crisis situation. You should write about that. That's really well known. Your professor would know about it. It's not a very, I mean, it wasn't a small attack, as you know. And by the way, about half of the perpetrators in that attack were women. And that's what caught my attention because at the time during the course, we hadn't really discussed women terrorists. I don't think we really discussed them. It was really just the concept of terrorism in general, what terrorism is, and then sort of regions of the world it's located in. So I thought that's really cool. I can write about Russia for my term paper and I could write about women terrorists, which isn't a topic we really discussed in the course. But again, there's only so much you can do within a semester in terms of course planning. So I don't blame the professor for not including that. For those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about the 2004 theater hostage situation? Yeah. So it occurred in 2004. Um, there was this play going on called Nord Ost. The terrorists picked that because they knew that there would be a lot of Russians in the audience. They knew there would be a lot of families in the audience. And I sort of at the start of the play, it started off normally. And then the terrorists get into the play and they say, we're taking over the theater. And the audience realizes that this is not part of the play. This is something else completely going on. 
And the actual attack lasted, well, the actual hostage situation lasted for a couple of days. And the way that the Russian government got everybody out was very controversial because they used some sort of gas that actually knocked out both the terrorist hostage takers and the victims. And it was just a completely botched rescue operation. So that is part of the the controversy of the attack. And what were some of the ramifications of this attack? So the attack wasn't successful from the hostage takers vantage point from their perspective. It was not a success, correct? As you said earlier, over half of the people involved were Chechen, Chechen women specifically. So what kind of ramifications, what impact did that have in kind of the course or the objectives of Russian anti-terrorism actions from that point forward? Well, really, I think the first ramification, as we've talked about, the rescue operation really just showed, again, how unprepared the Russian government was in the early 2000s and 2004 to unfortunately deal with these terrorist attacks. And after that, shortly around 2006, is when we see changes in legislation, broadening the scope of what the Russian government deems to be terrorism, broadening the scope of what the Russian government will do regarding counterterrorism operations. And I think this attack really kind of starts setting the ball in motion of really showing the Russian government, again, you know, we were caught flat-footed. This was a huge attack. This wasn't just some minor hostage-taking situation regarding, you know, an airplane or maybe something going on in a metro station. This was a theater. There were even foreigners involved, but the foreigners were let go, the foreign hostages. So it really just, again, showed the government that we this is becoming more of a problem. We need to take this seriously. And like I also talk about in my report, it's from this attack that the the moniker Black Widows really comes into play because the women that were doing the attack were dressed in these black, black veils. Hijabs is the proper term. And there was this theory at the time that the Russian media ran with that, oh, these because this again, this was early on in the Second Chechen War, that these are widows of Chechen men who have been killed. And so that's why they're involved. And that is a possible explanation as I delve into that in my report. But really, this this attack really had a lot of legal and cultural ramifications for the Russian, the Russian people and then the continuation of the Second Chechen War. When you say Russians, you mean ethnic Russians, correct? I do, but yeah. I also in this case mean Russians that are not Chechens. Okay. But okay. I'm, I'm specifically mean ethnic Russians because those okay. were the targets. Okay. Because when you talked about them letting the foreigners who were in attendance go, I was kind of like, oh, how did they figure out who was a foreigner? How did they determine this? Um, that would have been really yeah. interesting to know. They looked at the passports. Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah, they wow. Did. It's really interesting. I had a question about something that you touched on already is the coming to a consensus, narrowing it down to a single or a couple definitions of what terrorism is and who terrorists are. You say that the Russian government did that, was successful in kind of coming to a general consensus of, of what terrorism specifically is. Why is it important to keep this kind of positionality and perspective? Yeah. So I think as I talk about in my report, part of the issue with having multiple definitions is like even in the US after the September 9-11 attacks in 2001, we had, you know, CIA has their own definition of terrorism. The FBI has their own definition of terrorism. And then part of it is just, at least from the American perspective, these different government agencies, these different government 
bureaucracies and departments all not really being on the same page. And then when you broaden that and you look at the international scale of things, that's when you really get the politics coming into play. Because, for instance, the Israeli definition of terrorism. Now, I don't know the specifics of that, but their definition of terrorism is very specific to not include any actions that they may take mm-hmm. so that they're not considered terrorists. But it's very easy for them to point fingers at maybe Hamas or some other Palestinian group or, you know, another antagonistic group. And there are a lot of antagonistic groups towards Israel and the actions that they do as terrorist acts and actions. And so when you look at the world stage, that's a problem you run into a lot is the people in charge are the ones writing these definitions. And how are they writing them in a way that gives them the leeway to act aggressively, but it's not considered terrorism. Yeah, that's really a poignant thing to remember because from the perspective of, of these these people that we read, readily label as terrorists, right? These people who are committing these acts, this is oftentimes done in the name of, of freedom and in, in line with a, a really centuries-long struggle. You can link it there. There's this ideological connection, right? But so now I kind of want to transition a little bit back to how you got to writing about this. So I wanted to know a little bit more about what your specific goals were in writing this report, like what kind of contributions you wanted to make. Evidently, you noticed there were some gaps in the literature and you kind of wanted to probe those gaps as to why they're there or to fill them in with existing materials. So, I mean, the main gap I noticed, and this is a hard gap to fill, is what motivates women, in this case, Chechen women to become terrorists. Because as I say, in the very beginning of my report, in terms of women suicide bombers, which are the people that I'm looking at, you can't interview a successful suicide bomber. That's not the way the the role works. The point is that you blow yourself up in the process of committing this act. So the gap that I was trying to fill, unfortunately, may never really be able to be completely filled just because of the nature of what the subject is and the nature of the people that would need to be interviewed. But I did see that, you know, there were these these threads of these trends of maybe these women are motivated because, you know, they lost men in the first and second Chechen wars. And now they're they're avenging the men's deaths. Maybe they're motivated because they had some kind of trauma. Maybe they're even motivated because they have some kind of religious radicalization. And in particular, for Chechen women, these were kind of I don't want to say the consensus because, again, like we've talked about, there isn't a broad consensus of this is why women become terrorists. There are a lot of different moving parts and moving factors. But those three explanations really kept popping up in my research. And I realized that I was on to something and I wanted to kind of explore, okay, if I was answering this question, which I am, which explanations do I think are the most convincing to me and why? So this research that you were doing, you were mainly working with pre-existing literature, specifically about these these women, but also about, you know, weaving together literature that's about female terrorists, but not specifically focused on Chechnya, terrorism in Chechnya, but not specifically focused on women, kind of weaving them all together, right? Like you said, picking out these threads. Is there a lot of English language or Russian language analysis of this particular group or was that not the case? 
No, it was, it was not the case at all. A lot of the sources that I reference are sources I've already used for my paper for that Texas A&M course. So I, I took that paper from Texas A&M and I extended it, wrote about it for that seminar, and then that eventually evolved into this report. I should clarify that. So this has been at least uh, two or three different versions of the same topic. So in some sense, I did have a lot of sources from those two papers, but I didn't have any Russian language sources. And so that's where my, especially Dr. Garza, but both my readers really came in and said, okay, well, these are books that you can read that talk about the Chechen wars. I unfortunately don't have them in front of me, but they're written by journalists or other um, Russian um, analysts that really look at how did Russia get into these wars, why, and what is the trajectory. And these books were written in the early 2000s, so this was before the end of the Second Chechen War. So in some ways, the research is a bit old, but I did use them more for context and to have the Russian view of things, which unfortunately, as I talk about my report, in some cases is still very much censored, censored by the Russian government. They're very careful about what they let people know about the first and second Chechen wars, specifically the second one, because of the, the controversial sort of beginning with the apartment bombings and the, the Moscow apartment bombings. No one really knows exactly, no one really publicly knows exactly who was behind the apartment bombings. So that contributes to this layer of secrecy and to make a long answer short, I did have to dig for Russian sources because I had to know where to look and I had to make sure that the sources I were reading, I was reading were or seemed to be independent. I didn't want to just pull sources that were from Russian government side of things because I knew that those numbers or um, just the narratives could be very, uh, very spun. So you you write there's a lack of attention on the history of women terrorists. Do you think that this ties into Russia's long history of of censoring what kind of material has been produced? Like especially if we were considering like inner terrorism and terrorism that could potentially point to a particular government's own flaws and how its own people are you know reacting against it. That kind of information would not bode well for a state that was trying to maintain a particular image. Do you think that that might have had an impact on on how well women terrorists in Russia have been documented or studied? I think in some ways, yes, the Russian government's censorship of certain narratives about the Second Chechen War has tied into this. But I think also just because this phenomenon is if you look at the grand scheme of Chechen terrorism and you sort of put it, let's say, in a circle, like a, a pie chart, and then you have a section where it's like Chechen woman terrorism, that section of the pie chart is going to be fairly small. So in the grand scheme of things, you're also looking at a very small segment of Chechen terrorism to begin with. And I think that also contributes more to it being understudied than any actions by any government in particular. I think Going back to the broader topic of women and terrorism in general, yeah, in, in a lot of fields, what I'm trying to say is women are understudied in counterterrorism studies and no exception to that. So I think the fact that women terrorists are not, in most cases, as prevalent as male terrorists, regardless of sort of the group you're looking at, contributes to the lack of research and then the lack of existing research, maybe even the lack of interest to begin with. 
Something that came to my mind, and you mentioned this about Slavic terrorists in Russia. I am not familiar with any names of these of these Chechen black widows, but of course I know like Vera Zasulich and Sofia Pirovskaya, rather Vera Fichtner from Narodnaya mm-hmm. Volya. These very famous Russian female terrorists. If you could, am I like onto something a little bit here with also considering like like the backgrounds of these particular women versus the backgrounds of Chechen women and kind of those dynamics and maybe romanticizing history or kind of rehabilitating these figures in a way that makes them seem much better than they were perceived at the time? I'm going to kind of take us a little bit back to the Middle East because something that I noticed in my research is with the exception of the first Chechen female suicide bomber, Badeva, there hasn't really been seen a trend of mythologizing these women who become suicide bombers. There is sort of this cult of martyrdom seen in Hamas in Palestine with the Hamas suicide bombers, men and women. And so I saw a little bit of that with the very first female suicide bomber or the Chechen, very first Chechen one, Badeva again. But outside of her, I haven't really seen much evidence of this sort of mythology kind of taking life of its own. That's not to say that it won't happen in the future. And maybe it's happening now. And I just haven't seen it. I haven't come across it in my sources. But I do think maybe there's a possibility for that to happen, especially as we become more removed from the Second Chechen War. I mean, it it ended in 2009. So it's already been 12 years. And especially as Maybe the Russian government and Russian politics evolve. You know, no one really knows what's going to happen after Vladimir Putin ends his time as president in whatever manner he chooses to end it. But that is a big question mark. And I really think that sort of the way Chechen terrorism and the way Chechen women terrorists are treated both culturally in Russia and then culturally within the Chechen Republic really is going to change and depend on the direction that the overall Russian um, political sphere takes in the future. Could you elaborate a little bit more on how these women are perceived, um, like you said, perceived in Russia and then perceived within Chechnya? And for the perception within Chechnya, maybe delving a little into kind of incompatibility with suicide and Islam and martyrdom and this kind of acceptance and non-acceptance, this tension that plays out uh, in Chechnya. So I'll start with the broader view of Russia yes. first. So, of course, when you say the uh, the word uh, the word Sornlimdavli or you say Shahidki, mm-hmm. everybody instantly knows that you're talking about the Chechen black widows. And I remember my mom actually when she was in uh, visiting Moscow in the early 2000s, she said uh, something she noticed in the metros, the metro stations is first of all there were suddenly no more trash cans. Because that, at one point, became a very common way to throw an explosive device and then have, you know, an attack on a metro station. And she also noticed that as soon as a woman would enter the the car in black garb, whether or not she actually was a shahitka, nobody took any chances. Everybody left the car immediately and trained changed to another car, maybe even took another train. I'm not sure. I wasn't there. But I do think that that reaction, especially in the early 2000s, really speaks to the treatment of Chechen women, whether or not they're involved as terrorists in larger Russian society. There is the way uh, Russian society treats race 
and racism is very different than the way American society treats it. And you do see a lot of these historical tensions between people that are from the Caucasus, Kafkaski, Ludi, and Russian, ethnic Russians. And I think that really is another layer to how Chechen women and then Chechen terrorist women are treated within Russian society and portrayed as well by the media. But going to your other part of the question about how they're treated within Chechen society, the, the women that were successful in their suicide bombing, it usually came very much as a surprise to the family members that were being interviewed that their, that their daughters or their sisters or their wives or whatever term is applicable were even involved in these situations. It really became, in some, in some ways, it was a shock to family members that these people that they knew were involved in something that, for the most part, seemed very fringe and very on the outskirts of Chechen society. One of the things when you start studying counterterrorism, you realize is terrorists and terrorism, most of the time, originates on the fringes of society because, especially in the cases of political terrorism and political violence, and Chechnya is a case of that, where people that engage in these acts, at least initially in the beginning, going back to the first Chechen war, which was from 1994 to 1996, they started this as a way to gain political independence. And they started this as a political movement that eventually resorted to more violent tactics because they felt that they weren't being heard. And that's something that I learned very early on. The seeds of terrorism are not feeling like you're heard and feeling like you have to resort to unfortunately very violent and brutal methods in order to make your voice heard. Now, I'm not saying that they have a good message and I'm not saying that I'm going to listen to the message, but I am saying that in the cases of political violence and political terrorism, that is that is how it starts. People maybe that are not heard because they're on the fringes of society that take these actions. And then suddenly they are heard because of the effects of the attacks. You talked about how how terrorism is a kind of last resort action committed by people who felt that feel that they are not heard, right? And so that's Chechnya within the broader scale of Russia. But then when we when we zoom in a little bit into Chechnya and look at Chechnya, a lot of times Chechen women, because of these like traditional gendered roles, are also are, are on the margins of their own society and they're in their own culture, right? And so I was wondering how these layered kind of marginalizations impact this particular group of people and impact this particular phenomenon of Black widows? Part of what you're talking about in terms of the marginalization of Chechen women within their own society in some ways does contribute to a factor that may lead them to turn to terrorism, which, as I talk about in my report, is repressed trauma. And I talk about that not in the sense of sexism and maybe barriers they face being women living in a more Islamic society, but not to the degree that you may see, say, in Saudi Arabia, for example. But I talk about that more as how that impacts them if they've suffered some kind of sexual trauma. So usually rape, which especially during the Second Chechen War in the early years, well, actually during both wars, excuse me, but I particularly was looking at 
the second Chechen war, because that's when you see women bombers to begin with is 2000. I should clarify that at the beginning. That's the first year that we see a documented attack. So after 2000, and you see a lot of obviously cases of uh, human rights abuse on both sides, the Chechens and the Russians during the second war. So again, that kind of goes back to the censorship topic that we've been talking about. That's why there's a lot of censorship. So going back to this topic of Chechen women being marginalized, that contributes to, like, let's say a Chechen woman was raped by a Russian soldier. She, in some cases, uh, in most cases, unfortunately, will be blamed for the assault, even though it was an egregious crime that was done to her and she in no way had any anything to do with it. She was just the victim. So in, in most cases, because of that shame and that internal internal shame and internal narrative surrounding her own sexuality, if you look at a lot of, actually, I don't think there is a single religion that says it's okay to have any kind of sexual relations before marriage. I could be wrong, but... Being virtuous, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So in the case of Islam, that very much, like the other three main, the other few main religions, that very much is the case, having virtue before marriage. And for women, especially, that is highly regarded. Again, because as you know, it's, a woman can get pregnant. It's very obvious that she no longer has any virtue in that context. But a man, there's no way to really know. So that marginalization by virtue of their religion and also their gender, in some cases, kind of compounds on the trauma that they may feel. And it may make them easier to recruit into becoming a Black widow because they feel that they have nothing to lose in a sense. They've already lost something that is highly prized in both their society and their religion. So you write that the first and second Chechen wars were undoubtedly significant due to their relevance to how Chechen terrorism has evolved. But you write that they are less important in the context of female Chechen extremism. And so... I'm wondering how how this can be reconciled with what you're one of the main drivers that you talk about is trauma, because in my mind, those are really intimately linked. And to me, it seems that there is a kind of like maybe a natural progression from this kind of experience of trauma and war into developing this particular faction of extremism. So I want to clarify that. I know what PTSD is on just like a basic definition, but I've never dealt with studying it from a psychological perspective. So in terms of how the trauma may affect the Black Widow psychologically, I can't speak to that at all. But what I can say is that that narrative also was really picked up on by the Russian media again after the 2004 Dubrovka hostage crisis, because they were looking at trauma in the narrative uh, avenging the men's deaths in their lives and that sort of trauma of losing someone and going back to Chechen society, the head of the household, the person that is in charge of the house, the person that has, you know, status in society that you as a woman don't have and how you deal with, well, what happens to me now? Where do I go? Not literally go, but how do I maneuver through society now that I've lost this figure who really has, you know, is in charge of my house. Right. It's, it's, it's not only a person who like you've lost a family member. It's also, you've lost an integral 
part of how you function. So the reason I, I want I was asking that is because you write that there's no evidence of Chechen women being involved in terrorism up to and during the first Chechen war. Walk us through kind of the difference between Chechen resistance and radical Islamic terrorism and where those two have kind of met and, and intertwined. So in order to make this very brief, I'm just going to say that in order to understand how Islam, sorry, not the religion in general, but the sort of radical uh, Islam that we see that has led to all sorts of terrorist activity outside of Chechnya as well as inside of Chechnya, in order to understand how that sect of Islam got into Chechnya, we have to remember that the Soviet Union, 1979-1980, invaded Afghanistan and that that event happened. And then, long story short, that ends. But remember that the Soviet Union was involved in Afghanistan. And then once the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, you see a lot of different wars, in most cases in the Caucasus region, as part of just this messy dissolution, which I still don't understand how the dissolution was not more bloody, really. But all of these, these wars in a lot of places in the caucus, the Northern Caucus that are primarily Muslim. And so the jihadists who were fighting against the Soviet Union, against the United States during that war in Afghanistan, eventually make their way into these breakaway wars in the North Caucus, in Chechnya, in Dagestan, in Abkhazia, which is a part of Georgia. And so that sort of is where you really see this fusion of these Mujahideen, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but that's the term. These radical Islamic fighters who are not Chechen, not ethnically Chechen, come in and sort of fuse and, you know, do whatever they do on the battlefield and talk and share all these ideas. And then you have people like Shamil Basayev, who really sort of creates the brigade that we eventually are calling the Black Widows, picks up these ideas from his time talking to these people and that's how you see the Chechen resistance movement, how you see it shift from just a secular nationalist narrative of we want to be independent, we're Chechens, we're not Russians, to yeah, we want to be independent, but also we want to do this for Allah. And also we're going to uh, blow up you know, the subway, we're going to blow up this bus in the name of Allah. And so there's this really interesting fusion that happens that once you start pulling the strings, you actually have to go all the way back to 1979 to kind of see where it started. Yeah. Okay. So does that mean that the primary goal, their primary goal is more for martyr, martyrdom for Allah and less for freedom of Chechnya? Or is it both? Or can it not be disentangled at this point because of this kind of like evolution that has further maybe muddied or made its orientation and very kind of nebulous? I think at this point, like you said, it's probably so meshed and entangled together that it really is a fusion of the two motivations. And I think, you know, if for some, if in some way we were able to interview a failed Shahika and then we interviewed another failed Shahika, I think you might get two different orderings of the narrative. So maybe one would say, you know, I consider myself very devout. Muslim, I'm doing this for Allah. I'm doing this because I believe this is jihad and I'm doing it so that Chechnya be, can become independent. Whereas another failed Shahidka might have those in reverse order. So again, I think both of these, these motivations are so 
entangled that it really would be difficult to tease out specifically which one is the driving factor. I will say since the end of the Chechen war or the second Chechen war in 2009, I think if you are going to look at attacks since then by both men and women, you're more likely than not going to see a radical Islam as the driver. Because again, the Chechen war is over in 2009. And then since 2009, remember, we had um, ISIS come into existence and now is, well, still in existence, but certainly not as the case it was in 2014, 2015. And I think since 2009, across the board, we've seen a lot of issues of homegrown terrorism. We've seen a lot of issues of online terrorism, online radicalization. So I think in most cases, radical Islam, radical, this twisted version of the religion is more of the driving factor in the more recent attacks to begin with. You explore three primary motivational factors, repressed trauma, recruitment into radical Islam and revenge. You posit that the two most plausible seem to be revenge and radicalized Islam. And so I'm wondering, as we progress and kind of the memories of the Chechen wars become distant, although, you know, 12 years ago is when the last one ended. So it's really not that long ago. But as they become uh, more distant, perhaps as the people who who live during that time and can most vividly remember are growing older, again, not that long ago, but is revenge becoming less of a prominent motivational factor? And it's more so leaning in in favor of recruitment into radical Islam? You know, it's not a trend that I particularly decided to even explore if it is an existing trend. But I do think that's a good question for future research. If somebody out there is listening and is like, wow, I really want to research the Shahidki. Okay, this is an angle that you can take because off the top of my head, if I had to guess, I would say that yes, more likely than not, we are going to see radical Islam as the driver more than revenge. I do think that the Chechen tradition of revenge killing, which I refer to as Adat, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, is still going to be a driver to some extent because it is going to be, it's always a cultural factor that is going to come into play. But you do bring up a really good point. I think as we move further and further from the Chechen wars, the revenge motive and people that lived through these wars or directly lost somebody in these wars is most likely going to decrease. And we're most likely going to see an increase of, again, the issue of radicalization, particularly through online means as the world becomes more globally connected. The Chechen case is interesting because the movement evolved from a nationalist, uh, more secular perspective, not to say that these people were atheists brandishing weapons, fighting for Chechnya. But my point is that religion wasn't a narrative that they used to make the case for their independence. They used ethnic narratives saying, you know, we're Chechens, uh, linguistic narratives, we don't speak Russian, we speak Chechen more so than the fact that we are Muslim and you are Orthodox Christian, if I'm speaking for the majority of the Russian population. And secondly, I think it's also interesting because the Caucasus region in general, given its geography, developed isolated in some ways. They were isolated from each other, if you're looking at the Northern Caucasus, and both the North and the South 
we're isolated from each other as well. So you get these very unique languages and cultures, which are really only found in that region. And again, it makes that sector of the world very small compared to terrorism in the Middle East. But I think going back to Chechen terrorism, how that developing really tied into their nationalist narrative of, you know, Caucasians are very proud to be Caucasians. That was something I picked up in my travels in the South Caucasus. And though I've never been to the North Caucasus, I'm sure that holds true there as well. And then the other third point that makes the Chechen woman an interesting case in particular to study, like, is Chechnya and the Chechen Republic, Islam didn't really become fused with the identity of being Chechen the way it is with Saudi Arabia, for instance. And when I bring up Saudi Arabia, what I mean is the religion and the foundation of the country as we know it today are very much intertwined. Whereas with Chechnya, the base culture had already developed without this really strong influence of Islam. It's not as fused in the beginning as it is in Saudi Arabia. And so I think those three factors really make Chechen terrorism an interesting and unique case study. And then the fact that as a jihadist group, Basayev really pioneered using suicide bombers as a tactic. They weren't used as a last resort. They seemed to be used as the front line from what I saw in my research. I pulled this quote from your report. You say the study of radicalized Chechen women is much needed for the future of both Eurasian studies and counterterrorism studies. And I wholeheartedly agree. I think that everything you write about is really interesting for these very, you know, many layers. We have geographical, cultural, gendered layers that like I think should be delved into even more. Before you go, I wanted to ask if there was anything that you wanted to talk about that I hadn't brought up yet. I think the one thing you brought up that I hadn't had a chance to touch on yet was the concept of suicide and how that's viewed in, in this case, uh, Islam, but in a lot of other religions, it's also viewed as a sin and as something that you, you just don't do. It's God or whatever name you want to put to your deity gave you this life. Why are you taking it before supposedly your time? And something that I found was interesting was, yes, suicide in Islam is viewed as sinful. But if it's able to be used in a way that is for jihad and you're able to prove that. So, for instance, if you're looking at Bareva, the first Chechen woman suicide bomber, if she and her, her last words are documented, unfortunately, I don't have them in front of me. But she does say that I'm doing this for Allah. So she she proves to anybody that's listening that, yes, I'm committing something that's considered sinful in my religion. But I'm doing this for Allah because I believe that this is my way of doing jihad. And this is my way of showing that I am taking up the mantle of jihad. And so I think when you're talking about suicide terrorism, especially with, uh, within radical Islam, you really have to look at, and again, I don't profess to be an expert on Islam or any kind of um, religion other than Christianity, because that's, that's what I brought, was brought up in. But I, I do think you have to understand what uh, these religions teach and then what is twisted and utilized by terrorists to recruit people for, to do suicide bombing. Because, again, something I talk about in my report is how do you get somebody to be OK 
with blowing themselves up and somehow making it acceptable to maybe their family or other people around them, presuming that maybe the family knew what was going on. In most cases um, that I read, that was not the case, but there are there can be exceptions. How do you make it convincing for someone to strap an explosive device on themselves and blow themselves up? You have to find ways to do that. And one of the ways, especially since the end of the Chechen War, the Second War, has seemed to be a radicalization of Islamic doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lucy, I want to congratulate you on writing this really well-researched and compelling report. And thank you so much for joining us, Lucia. It was really a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Pleasure was mine. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast for conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in the program represent the views of the host and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 